On February 1st, 2012, 18-year-old Samantha Koenig was preparing to close up the Common Grounds Espresso Shack near Anchorage, Alaska. It was just about 8 p.m. when who would be the last customer approached the window to the shack. Samantha had only been working there for about a month and seemed to really be enjoying it. She was getting back on her feet after a bit of a rough patch, and the job as a barista seemed to be a really great fit for her. Just an hour and a half ago, she had hung up the phone with her dad, James Koenig, and he knew that her boyfriend would be by to pick her up around 8 p.m. As Samantha turns around with the coffee, the customer with the ski mask pulls a gun out of his jacket and demands that she give him the money from the cash drawer. While she does so, he forces himself inside of the building through the service window. And in the CCTV footage, you can see the lights go off as he clearly directed her to do so. He then zip-tied her hands together behind her back and forced her out of the back door with his weapon. He directed her to take him to her vehicle, and she told him that she doesn't have a car, so he hurried her along to his truck, parked a short distance away. She took the opportunity to break away free from him and run, only to be tackled to the ground moments later. Samantha's captor reminded her that he did indeed have a gun, and that if she tried to run again, he'd kill her immediately and no one would be any wiser, because he had a silencer on it. Welcome back to Murder and Mediumship. I'm your host, Katherine Gelvin. Before we dive into the episode, I wanted to remind everyone that readings are now available for the months of September and October, and it feels so damn good to be back. Not only that, but Patreon-exclusive episodes with live Q&A to follow are getting juicier. We've recently covered H.H. Holmes, Israel Keys, and are about to cover Jeffrey Epstein and his alleged suicide. These are only for those on the tier called Investigate, so come on over and dig into the extra juicy episodes reserved for patrons. Also, shouting out to the newest patrons, Sydney, Christy, and Raina. Thanks for helping to support the production of the show. Now let's dig in. Samantha Koenig was born on August 30th, 1993 in Anchorage, Alaska. She was the fifth out of six kids, and from what I understand, while incredibly kind, excitable, and eager, she could also hold her own, and in her late teens had fallen into some less than favorable habits. But like I said, she was moving past that phase of her life. She had tried her hand working at Subway, and I gotta say, not a bad gig, but holy cow, do you carry the smell of bread with you everywhere that you go? This was my very first real job. <laughs> and she worked at House of Harley in Anchorage for a bit as well. And according to her dad, she was really enjoying this barista position. And like I said earlier, she'd only been there for about a month so far. Despite loving the job, it was far from her dream job. She had her sights set on working with horses or wild animals of some sort, but was also entertaining the idea of being a nurse after possibly enlisting in the United States Navy. I mean, at 18, your possibilities are truly endless, right? And how many of us have gone to school for something only to be doing something entirely different? She was also in an almost year-long relationship with her boyfriend, which again, despite a small rough patch, they were doing really well at the time of her disappearance. 
This was also who was supposed to be picking her up that evening, but got held up at work himself. I'm not going to use his name in the episode, but if you do a little bit of digging yourself, you will be able to find it. I just feel like this is something worth keeping as private as possible. Whoever wasn't directly involved with anything, I'd like to just preserve their names. The next day, February 2nd, when Samantha hadn't returned home and her calls to her phone continued to go unanswered, her dad reported her missing. He's quoted in an article by CBS News saying that her phone rang and rang and rang until the battery basically died, and then it started going straight to voicemail. Initially, the coffee shop owner and a few others assumed she had just run off with the cash in the drawer and stolen it, maybe for drugs or something. He couldn't really say. The door to the shop was locked up, but the security system had not been set, which was still a little peculiar. The shop owner had the staff clean up, and I mean, I was seething when I read this, but the shop owner had the staff clean up from clean up the shop from the night before and continue business as usual the next morning, as if nothing had happened. So when police saw the surveillance footage and witnessed, when they finally saw the surveillance footage and witnessed Samantha's reaction to the person coming in the window and showing her his weapon, though they couldn't identify who he was because of his ski mask, not suspicious, it's February in Alaska for crying out loud, They knew that she had been taken against her will, and she was in a great amount of danger. Her status was immediately listed as an abduction. Her family, three sisters, two brothers, neighbors, the entire community came out in droves to hang flyers with her family and to help them spread the word to really anyone who would listen. What the public didn't know was that her captor's truck had been well prepared for an abduction. He had forced her out of the shop toward Tudor Road in Midtown Anchorage and into a white pickup truck, which she had already removed the license plates from, in his toolbox in order to make it less identifiable. He had been prepared well in advance of her abduction. He told her that he kidnapped her for ransom and that it didn't matter if her family had no money. The community would make it happen. The police would make it happen. He would get his money and she would get to go back to her family. After driving her around for hours, He eventually went back to his own home where he had a shed not far from that home that others were not allowed into, like his 10-year-old daughter and his live-in girlfriend who were fast asleep in the house nearby. He blasted music from the shed and realizing that she had left her phone at coffee grounds, he drove back for it and broke in just to get her phone. He had gone back after taking her and that next morning on the 2nd, no one was any wiser again as to what was going on. After getting her phone, he also demanded her debit card, which, of course, she still didn't have. So he then drove to where she lived with her father and boyfriend, and he broke into the boyfriend's truck to steal the debit card. Not only that, if you're already thinking, well, good lord, that's awfully ballsy, he was seen by the boyfriend, who ran inside to get James Koenig to help, and by the time they got back out, the captor had left and was nowhere to be found. The evening of her abduction, before being reported missing, Both her boyfriend and the owner of the coffee shop received text messages from her phone saying something about having had a rough day and needing to get out of town for a few days, but no one bought it. Law enforcement had really nothing to go on, and as everyone close to her or knew her, they'd been ruled out. No one could really identify the man on surveillance because of his ski mask, and while the public demanded to see the CCTV footage, law enforcement wouldn't release it to the public, as it wouldn't have really helped to identify him, and plus, they were holding close to the chest that the weapon of choice was in fact a gun. They needed some evidence that the public didn't readily know about to be kept private for the sake of the investigation. After those initial text messages, though, it was crickets. 
Despite the police not having even a person of interest, her father and others had an idea in their heads of who could have taken Samantha. Not so long ago, in November of 2011, Samantha had filed for an order of protection against a local rapper, alleging that he had sexually assaulted her and that she didn't feel safe. She failed to show up in court for the hearing, though, so the order of protection was dropped. The rapper outright denied having one. Again, we're going to keep his name private here as well. Feel free to use the Google box if you like. He denied to having sexually assaulted her and to having had anything to do with her disappearance. He said that because of this false allegation, he was now being crucified by the public both locally and online. His YouTube videos had accusations of rape and foul play scrawled across them, and so did his other social media outlets, all painting him to be someone that he claimed to not be. The rapper continued to defend himself, even volunteering to take a lie detector test, which he passed. Police also never named him as a suspect, let alone even a person of interest. Still, he and his family were afraid for their safety because of the threats that they had received, and it's said that he moved out of Alaska with his mom and daughter, though I can't confirm that, holding tight to the claim of his innocence of both the assault and of the kidnapping. Most of her family was fervently looking for her, but not everyone was as kind and helpful. Samantha's stepbrother was fairly outspoken online and with the media about how the public wasn't really getting a good image of what his stepsister was, quote, really like. He defended the rapper and insisted that Samantha wasn't who she was being painted to be. Her father jumped to her defense, stating that Samantha has smoked marijuana in the past and, yes, has experimented with cocaine, but that it had been over a year ago, and that was something he was going to stand by her and her boyfriend through, this rough patch that they had gone through, and come out on the other side clean. None of that should even affect how someone's looked for, though, and we all know, though, it can and does affect that. Four days went by. And on February 6th, the police let the general public know that they still had no known persons of interest or descriptions to give. By this time, though, the reward money had increased to $41,000. Just about two weeks after her abduction, the first sign of Samantha surfaced again. Her phone was turned back on and a text message was sent to her boyfriend that read, quote, Connor Park, signed under, picture of Albert. Ain't she purdy? End quote. Investigators went to Connor Park, and what they found was a memorial photo of sweet Albert the dog, who had passed away, and directly under it, a Ziploc bag protected from the elements, was a photograph of Samantha Koenig staring directly into the camera. Next to her was an arm coming into the camera frame holding a copy of the day before's newspaper, February 13th. Written on the back of the photograph was a ransom note for $30,000. This photograph gave her family, detectives, and the community hope that she really could still be alive. So with help from the reward money and the FBI, the money was deposited into Samantha's bank account. Without hesitation, the card began showing up at ATMs. Over the next two weeks, her captor took money out from her account in smaller increments, anywhere from $80 to $500 at a time. He made withdrawals in Anchorage, Arizona, New Mexico... And by March 9th, 2012, just a month over after she had last been seen, according to Sergeant Markowitz of the Anchorage Police Department, they had interviewed over 100 people and followed up over, one, over 400 tips related to Samantha's disappearance. He called the social media dialogue a nasty distraction from what was important and that it wouldn't help solve anything at all. Markowitz said that they certainly had no evidence that she was dead, but they didn't have anything to verify that she was alive either. 
even that newspaper clipping, it was a couple of days old and by this time weeks old. Keep in mind, this is five weeks after she's been missing and taken at gunpoint at that. However, when an ATM withdrawal was made in Arizona, the culprit slipped up. While he remained in disguise, the vehicle he had been driving, a white Ford Focus, could be seen in the background. Law enforcement was made extremely aware of this across the country as the FBI was tracking the movements via Samantha's credit or debit card. Every time the card was used, though, by the time law enforcement got there, it was too late. So on March 13th, the white Ford Focus was spotted in Texas at a hotel parking lot. The officer watched the man get into the car and drive away, all while following closely behind, just waiting for him to make another mistake and to give him a reason to pull him over. As soon as the driver of the Focus went a measly three miles per hour over the speed limit, the officer turned on his lights and pulled him over. They finally had Samantha's kidnapper. The driver handed over his license, an Alaska driver's license that identified him as Israel Keys, a 34-year-old male from Anchorage, Alaska. After searching his vehicle, police were able to find Samantha's ID, her debit card, her cell phone, wads of cash, and a loaded gun. The disguise he wore over his face at the ATMs, a cut-up gray t-shirt that was even there on his seat, but there was no sign of Samantha. Where was she if he was all of the way down in Texas? After two weeks, Israel Keys was extradited back to Alaska, where he was known as a successful construction company owner, a great family man, and a trustworthy individual. He was someone you could, quote, trust with a key to your house. He didn't even have a criminal history. Everything about this person surprised law enforcement. And once back in Alaska, Keys admitted fairly quickly to killing Samantha, explaining that he had actually killed her fairly late that evening of February 1st into the morning hours of the 2nd. Because it was so cold in Anchorage in February, he was able to leave her in the shed. I'm really saying this while he flew down to Louisiana with his girlfriend and daughter to go on a week-long cruise. He went on a cruise while there was a body lying in his shed, a dead body lying in his shed. I just... I can't even imagine. And because it was February in Alaska, he didn't have to worry about any decomposition or any smells or anything like that. She was frozen and perfectly preserved and it wasn't anything he had to think about. And it's just mind-numbing to me that he literally left her in the shed and went to pack for a trip after stealing her debit card and stealing her cell phone. So he told law enforcement, though, that the photograph of Samantha he had left in the park was taken almost two weeks after he had killed her and that he had sewn her eyes open with fishing line. It was quickly understood that Samantha was not his only victim, and when Key's computer was seized by officials, he confessed to the murders of Bill and Lorraine Courier, and while also confirming that there were, of course, countless others, he wouldn't say how many, where they were, how he killed them, or even their genders or ages. The only reason he admitted to killing the Couriers was because he knew that there was a computer with evidence on it that they had, or he wouldn't have said a word. In exchange for Samantha's body, the prosecutor's office arranged a deal that guaranteed him the death penalty, and quickly at that. However, if in the meantime, federal law enforcement found anything on federal property, then it was out of their hands. Keyes was fairly confident that no one would find anything that he had done. He confessed to the three murders of Samantha Koenig and Bill and Lorraine Courier and told them that Samantha's body could be found in Lake Matanuska, north of Anchorage, but that it would be in pieces. 
He had dismembered her after taking the ransom photo and over a three-day period had dropped her through various fishing holes on the frozen lake. Why Samantha? Keyes told him that he chose Common Grounds Espresso because it was open later than the others in the area, so it would be easier to get away with. He otherwise had no connection to her whatsoever. He more or less laughed and thought it was amusing that she tried to convince him to let her go because her family didn't have any money. He reassured her that they would find a way to get the money to him and that once he got the money, he would let her go, though he had no intent of doing so. According to one of the investigators sitting in on the confession, which has never been made public, he spoke of killing Samantha the way one would discuss what they were making for dinner or any other meaningless conversation. He was completely remorseless. They came to believe that he had victims all over the United States and even found two of his, quote, kill kits, one in New York and one in Alaska. Yes, kill kits. In 2007, he created his construction company, Keys Construction, and he used this as one of the excuses for his traveling. In reality, though, he was funding his flights and travels, motels and car rentals through bank robberies, not through contracting work. Anywhere he left a kill kit, he meant to come back there and grab someone, sexually assault them, and kill them. He would then bury the kill kit when he was done. These kits included things like shovels, plastic bags, money, weapons, ammunition, and Drano to help dispose of the bodies more efficiently. Two were found, but Keyes claimed to have left some in Arizona, Washington, Texas, and Wyoming. On April 2nd, 2012, Samantha's body was recovered by a forensic dive team and her family was able to lay her to rest. However, they weren't able to see their day in court, as Israel Keyes didn't wait for his quick execution. On December 1st, 2012, Keyes took his own life by cutting his wrist with a razor blade embedded into a pencil, then strangling himself using his bedsheets. His body was discovered the next morning on December 2nd. An apparent suicide note was recovered from his cell, crumpled up on the floor. Underneath his bed were 12 drawings, 11 skulls, and a pentagon. It's widely believed that these 11 skulls represented his 11 victims. Personally, I believe there were more than 11, but not nearly as high as others believe he could have killed. Samantha Koenig was indeed the last victim of Israel Keys. He took her during his downward spiral and his loss of control, kind of his escalation phase. He let his urge to kill outweigh his methodical and dedicated patience. After his death, the FBI released a list of 35 places that he had traveled to between the United States and Canada. We covered the murders of Israel Keys in greater detail on one of the more recent Patreon-exclusive live episodes with Q&A at the end. To this day, the FBI is actively investigating other cases that they believe could be tied to Israel Keys. If you know anything about someone who could have been a victim of his, please don't hesitate to call local law enforcement or the FBI. Don't forget, the next Patreon-exclusive episode with Q&A is on September 26th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'll see you all there, and until next week, be kind, be safe, be loving.